Hello and welcome to another teaching from 119 Ministries. Our ministry believes that the whole Bible is true and directly related to our lives today. If you would like to know more about what we believe and teach, please visit us at testeverything.net. If you enjoy this video, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe to our channel by hitting the button down below. We hope that you enjoy studying and testing the following teaching. Welcome to The Whole Word, an introductory teaching to Hebrew Roots by 119 Ministries. If you are watching this, we expect that you recently discovered that the whole Word of God is still true and applicable to all in the faith. But you, like countless others coming into this understanding, likely have many questions. Our goal is to try to bring you clarity amidst all the confusing information that you may have come across in your pursuit of truth. Despite your denominational background, you might be asking yourself, where do I even begin? This teaching will cover the application of many of the fundamental commandments found in the Torah. 119 Ministries presents, Welcome to the Whole Word. Welcome to what we like to call the Whole Word of God in which we learn and apply in our lives everything from Genesis to Revelation. It is all truth and instructions for all in the faith today. Nothing in the law of God has been removed, ended, destroyed, deleted, or applied differently, whether Jew or Gentile. This teaching is mostly intended for those who are new to applying the whole word, though others may find parts of this teaching valuable and worth considering as well. This is not intended to be a small introduction and then just send you on your way. This is a first-day-on-the-job orientation, if you will, to learn the role of being a part of the sect of the way, as Paul called it. So, we expect that you have studied Acts chapter 10, Acts 15, and Paul's letters in Hebraic context, and you have decided that our Messiah taught and practiced the whole law of God, and we who follow Him should also follow the whole law of God just the same. As you know, this is no small thing. You feel as though your faith has just been turned upside down, but in a good way. A passion and energy for the Word that may have not been present since the first day you came into the faith is now full steam ahead in your life again. So, what do you do now? What is the next step? We expect that those who have come to realize that the whole law of God has not changed, nor will ever change, should benefit from a welcome wagon to the whole Word of God, an orientation, if you will. Because at this moment, you may be suffering from theological disorientation. You may feel as though your head is spinning just a little bit. If you are not, then that is fantastic. But we sure felt that way, at least initially. We had so many questions and were so confused about some things, and we did not always know exactly what to do or who to talk to. So if you are like us, then we expect that you have many questions. We don't claim to have all of the answers, but we have seen many go through this process. And we have as well, so perhaps we can help some. A common question we receive is, Okay, I get it. Now what do I do? Where do I go from here? What is next? What do I do now? What about this? Or what about that? We have found these questions have come and continue to come from all backgrounds. Examples include someone who may have been in Orthodox Judaism, or maybe a Christian in Russia, or a new Christian in New York 
And yes, even seminary-trained Baptist preachers wanting to know how they should handle their new Hebraic understanding with their local congregation. It makes no difference what the person's background might be. People are coming to the truth that the whole Word of God is still true and applicable to believers today. So, welcome to the whole Word of God. But there are always immediate questions. At first, this new perspective seems rather overwhelming to a person, having all of these questions. However, it is a good overwhelming, if that makes sense. But you know what we mean. Everything feels right, and finally the big picture of our Creator makes perfect sense, from the beginning to the end. More than likely, if you are like many others, this new realization has put you on a path in which you simply cannot get enough Bible. Things are connecting and making sense that never made sense before. Quite often, we personally like to call this moment being in sponge mode. It is the point in which you are just soaking it all in. Your faith before Torah may have felt rather dry and empty. But now you have been placed in water, and you cannot just stop soaking it all up. Purpose, life, energy, meaning, truth, revelation, etc. is now exploding all over the Bible like never before. Like someone turned on a switch or pushed over a domino in a chain of dominoes. You know what we mean. And explaining it to someone who has not come to this perspective is simply quite difficult. To your own frustration. They just don't understand the excitement. Every waking moment available to you is likely consumed with examining the Word of God from a Hebraic perspective. It dominates your thoughts and energy. There are many questions that should be your first priority. Some of these questions include, What instructions from our Creator should I be following that I am not currently? What commandments are often misunderstood or debated? What is tradition versus actual commandments? What do I do about fellowship? How should I expect this to affect friends and family? And how should I best proceed? What teachers does 119 Ministries recommend? These are all questions that you may have, so we intend on doing our best in walking you through these things, at least the best that we can with the limited time we have for this teaching and the amount of ground that we must cover. Before we get started, there are a few things to keep in mind. 119 Ministries is not your authority on anything. We will never claim to be your authority. The Word of God is your authority, and your only authority. If you ever say, or hear someone else say, I believe this because 119 Ministries said, then please stop right there. Our faith is in the Word, not what 119 Ministries believes and teaches. We are an imperfect tool of Yah. He is perfecting us, yes, but we are not perfect yet. Test everything, we say, to the Word of God. We are not always right, nor will we always be right as long as we are in the flesh. 119 Ministries is not immune to making mistakes. We have made plenty of mistakes, and the longer that you observe 119 Ministries, chances are you will see us make mistakes every so often. We wish it were not true, but sometimes 119 Ministries simply messes up, and we need to repent, recover, apologize, republish, do damage control, etc. We do hope, however, that those mistakes become farther away and fewer in number, and even more so, when they do happen, that they might be learning opportunities for all of us. Also, 119 Ministries will occasionally offend you. We should repeat that. Sometimes 119 will offend you, either in truth and the Spirit or, sadly enough, because even in error of the flesh. 119 Ministries may make you mad, 
sad, angry, offended, or cause any other sort of negative emotive response in you. Let us be clear, we do not want to do that, especially if we are in the wrong. There is not a day that goes by that is not brought to our attention that we have offended someone by something we did, said, or posted on Facebook, for example. It is not that we try to offend, in fact, quite the opposite. We try to find balance between truth and effective presentation. However, people are diverse, and there is no getting around the fact that what we say can be misunderstood or perhaps not even agreeable to others, or to be more blunt, it could be that we simply said or did something stupid. Or it could simply be that the truth itself is what is found offensive. So it is not if we offend you, but when we offend you. When that happens, we do ask that you consider reaching out to us so things can be reconciled and we can repair our mistakes. Letting wounds fester causes death to the body, similar to cancer. If we cause a problem, let us know. Because our faith is not about us. It is not about you. It is about bringing glory to our Creator and everything. I mean, everything should be about that. If it is not, or even worse, if it damages the body and flings mud on our Creator visible to the nations, then what worse offense could there be? Also, you will not agree with us on everything. At some point, you may find that something we teach contradicts your own conclusions. That is usually fine. Not every matter must be agreeable, and none of us have figured everything out. It is possible that we could be wrong and even need to correct our own views on certain things. Regardless, that is why we encourage all to test everything. At minimum, we hope we can agree that we should follow our Messiah Yeshua, that He died on our behalf, enabling the grace that our Creator has always extended to those in the faith, and that in the faith we should strive to follow the whole Word of God. If we can all agree to that, then we are all doing well. So, let's get started. Our goal will be to answer each question to such an extent that it should help you get started in this new perspective. That is to say, an additional self-study or testing our responses should be warranted. We always encourage more study and testing what we say to the Word. Often, we will refer to existing 119 Ministries teachings for more clarification and material. Let's get started. The Questions what instructions from our Creator should I be following that I am not currently? We will address this question assuming that it is coming from more of a traditional Christian mindset or background. Now that you have entered into the understanding that the whole Word of God is still true and applicable to all in the faith, then there are a few instructions that are not too common in mainstream Christian circles today that are a part of the Word of God. Often when one begins this journey, one immediately searches out to see what Judaism does. It is assumed that Judaism has figured everything out as they follow the Torah. That assumption is both correct and not so correct. Many Jews claim that there are 613 commandments. When one begins really inspecting that so-called list and examining the scriptures provided in that list, a couple things are realized. First, there are commandments that appear to repeat on the traditional list of 613 commandments. Second, sometimes even when looking at the Hebrew, it is very difficult to understand how they conclude something to be a commandment when the scripture that is cited does not seem to support it. So, there really does not seem to be 613 commandments. It seems to be more of a tradition. There might be fewer than 613 commandments, or it might be very well that 613 commandments is a close estimate. But, that is something you can test out for yourself and see what conclusions you arrive to. 
In addition, many of the commandments in the Torah require a temple, and there is no temple today. Other commandments require being in the land, and we have not yet been restored to the land. That does not mean that these commandments are abolished or changed. They are simply waiting for the established criteria and conditions to present themselves. Here's an example we like to use to help explain this. There are countless traffic laws in the United States. If all of the roads in the United States disappeared, it does not mean that traffic laws disappeared too. The traffic laws are still written and still exist. One cannot obey them, however, because there are no longer any roads. Now, if roads appeared the very next day, those traffic commandments could be observed again. So, in this example, the traffic laws were not abolished, even though they could not be observed. Their observation was dependent on the existence of roads. This is true for many of God's commandments as well. Many of the commandments require a temple. There is no temple today. So those commandments are still in effect, but simply waiting for the temple to exist again. There are other things to consider. Just like in the United States, there are laws you must observe if you are a homeowner. For example, property taxes. Or there are laws if you are a farmer. For example, the safe application of fertilizer. If you are not a homeowner or a farmer, those particular commandments of the United States, they don't apply to you. You can obey the whole law of the United States, even though it does not all apply specifically to you. But the whole law of the United States applies to all U.S. citizens. This is the same with the law of God. There are commandments for women. If you are a man, these commandments will not apply to you. There are commandments for farmers. If you are not a farmer, these commandments will not apply to you. There are commandments for those with parents. If you no longer have parents, these commandments will no longer apply to you. There are commandments for the Levites. If you are not a Levite, then those commandments do not apply to you. Most of the temple commandments relate to one being a Levite. Thus, there are many things to consider here as it relates to what commandments are observed, and it really becomes more of a common sense thing. These are all still things that many have not really considered. Here's another way to consider this. Let's suppose that you do not break any of the laws in the country you live in. You are a law-abiding citizen. Does that mean you observe the whole law of your country? Yes, you do, because you do not break any of the laws. But, in the same way, you do not really observe every law, because not every law is for you, and many laws depend on your circumstances. But you do keep all the laws of your country, or at least we hope you do. There are laws if you are driving a car, flying an airplane, starting a business, owning a house, etc., etc. But if you are not driving a car, you cannot observe the traffic laws. Or if you are not a pilot, then the laws of flying are not for you. But all the laws are for all the citizens of your country. Likewise, our Creator has laws for His kingdom as well. It is called the Law of God, or the Torah. And just like you need to figure out how the laws of your country relate or don't specifically relate to you, we need to look at the Word of God and see what commandments are written for you specifically, based on who you are, where you live, what you do for a living, if you have a family, if you own land, if you loan money, etc. All of these things matter. So let's dive into some of the main commandments that might be new for a traditional Christian. There really aren't that many, but despite this, they are quite significant. This will not be an all-inclusive list, 
Studying God's Word and His instructions for us is something we should all do as we live out the faith. In other words, we simply hope to get you started. The Sabbath One of the more important instructions is the Seventh-day Sabbath. Many immediately think of the Seventh-day Adventists. Yes, there are groups that claim to keep the Sabbath, such as the Seventh-day Adventists or the Seventh-day Baptists, for example. But more often than not, the primary instruction surrounding the Sabbath is missed, and they do not realize it. The Sabbath is intended for rest. The primary focus is not really about worship, like many of these groups make it out to be. Every day is to be about worship. We are to rest and not work, nor are we to directly cause others to work. We're not even to cause our livestock to work. They are to receive a day of rest every week as well. There is often the obvious question as to what exactly constitutes as work. That question is not a new question. For example, in response to that question, the Pharisees constructed a massive list of do's and don'ts around the Sabbath. That was never our Creator's intent, because then God's law becomes legalistic, and the point of it all is missed, which is to love God and to love others. The purpose is to not focus on man-made rules built around the commandments of God. At that point, you begin following men, not God. This is one of the many reasons that Yeshua had such harsh words for the Pharisees and their doctrine. Unlike the Pharisees, we are not going to define what is work for you to that degree of detail. That is between you and our Creator. You need to define the difference between work and rest for you in your house. Some things are obviously work, and some things in context and in scope may not be defined as really interrupting the rest that we are to have on this set-apart day. There are often other circumstantial questions that surround the Sabbath as well. Fortunately, we have a teaching prepared that focuses only on the subject of the Sabbath. You can watch the teaching titled, The Sabbath Day, at testeverything.net for more on this subject. Dietary Instructions Another substantial set of instructions are found in Leviticus 11. These are called the Dietary Instructions. Most traditional Christians today do not observe Yahweh's dietary instructions. We can eat all food, yet Yahweh lists what He defines as food for us and what is considered not food. Some examples of things that are not considered food are dog, cat, pig, shrimp, lobster, rats, buzzards, catfish, etc. Things that are not defined as food by our Creator, we do not eat. Quite often, the animals defined as unclean have higher toxicity levels and other undesirable things to consider. Regardless of our Creator's reason for not eating certain animals, simply put, He said that unclean animals are not food. Circumcision Circumcision is a commandment that is full of controversy, even in the Hebrew roots perspective of the Bible. In the end, we believe that one should follow the whole Word of God, which, of course, includes circumcision. As you've likely already learned, the controversy regarding circumcision in the New Testament revolved around salvation. The command of circumcision was misused by some sects of Judaism as part of a conversion ritual. It was taught that Gentiles needed to get circumcised as a prerequisite to salvation. Obviously, the apostles taught against such an idea. They taught that we are saved on the basis of our faith in Messiah, not by a conversion ritual but they never taught that the commandment of circumcision is done away with. For more information on this topic, we recommend our study, Acts 15, Obedience, or Legalism and 
circumcision, the sign of the covenant. As with all of our teachings, these can also be found at testeverything.net. Seat Seats, Numbers 15. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember to do all my commandments, and be holy to your God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh your God. This is a commandment that many mainstream Christians likely do not even know about. The commandment is simple enough. Tassels that look like these are attached to your garments. They contain a blue thread. Many understand that there are to be four tassels. The reason for this is because the commandment speaks of attaching the tassels to the four corners of our garments. Thus, it is inferred that there are to be at least four tassels. Whether or not this is exactly right, we don't know for sure. There needs to be at least two because the word tassels is plural. At any rate, the symbolism of four corners should be clear. Just as it is a Hebraic idiom to understand that the four corners of the world relates to the whole world, the four corners of our garments implies that we are to be fully clothed in the Word of God. Our whole being is to remember His commandments. Always. In Hebrew, the word corners and edges are from the same word. Some have modified their clothing to contain four corners or edges and then attach the seat seats there. Some wear traditional Hebrew garments for the seat seats to attach to. Others simply wear the seat seats on their belt loops of their pants, as many have realized that belt loops have four corners as well. None of these methods are more right than the other. They all fit what Yahweh is asking us to do. He simply said to attach tassels containing a strand of blue to the four corners of our garments. How we choose to do that, he left up to us. The point is that we want to wear seat seats to help us visually remember the commandments of God, which does imply, of course, that they are visible and to be worn as often throughout the day that one wants to be reminded to keep the commandments of God. We would expect that one would want to be reminded all day, of course. It is understood that they should be visible as they would certainly not be much of a reminder if they are not seen. Hidden seat seats, or the lack thereof, sort of defeats the purpose of seat seats being a visual reminder which was clearly the intent given to us by our Creator. Because this commandment can be carried out as instructed, and because they are to be visible reminders of obedience, most realize that this commandment is not only symbolic or internalized, but physically observed as well. That would mean not wearing seat seat could be considered sin. There are many different types of styles and lengths, as Torah establishes no other detailed criteria. There are instances in which Yeshua condemned the Pharisees in wearing their seat seats too long. Matthew chapter 23. This is not because it is necessarily bad to wear long seat seats, but he knew the heart of the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not wear long seat seats because it might better help them to remember Yahweh's commandments. Instead, their seat seats were there to draw attention to themselves. This is not to be their purpose. So when wearing them a certain way, we want to make sure we check our motives as to the reason why. There are instruction videos on how to make your own, and there are places online that sell them as well. Some teachings we have on this subject are the teachings Blue, Should Women Wear Seat Seats, and Streets of Torah. Mixing Thread 
There is a commandment found in Deuteronomy 22, verse 11, that speaks of not mixing wool and linen together. This is pretty straightforward. We are to not mix wool and linen together. Indeed, this is an odd commandment that is intentionally given to us by our Creator. Why in the world would mixing thread matter? Because it is an odd commandment, it is designed to get our attention. Common to many of the commandments, there is a deeper spiritual understanding that can be found here. For more on this, please see our teaching titled Wool and Linen. Christmas and Easter There are various commandments that instruct us to not worship Yahweh as nations worshiped their gods. Because there's evidence to suggest that the traditions and customs associated with Christmas and Easter came from the traditions and customs used to worship false gods, Christmas and Easter are consequently discarded. For more on this subject, please see our teachings titled The Green Tree and Let Christmas Trees Rejoice. Our Creator gave us many other holidays instead of unbiblical holidays without the concerns of suspect pagan origins. We will discuss those next. The Appointed Times, the Moedim. The word holiday is linguistically rooted in the words holy and day, or holy day. That, of course, became what we hear today as holiday. The Hebraic biblical definition of something being holy is to be considered set apart, which comes from the Hebrew word kodesh. The opposite of being set apart is to be common or profane. The only days that are truly set apart are days that our Creator declared to be holy or set apart. Obviously, man cannot declare a day to be set apart or holy when Yahweh Himself did not declare it to be. The set apart days are also called the Moedim or appointed times. One of these days we have already covered, the Sabbath day. There are more Moedim, or appointed times. One of the places you'll find these days is in Leviticus 23. There is Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, and of course the Sabbath every single week. As you can see, God's real holidays contain even more days per year. So discarding Christmas and Easter isn't that big of a sacrifice. God's holidays are also much more meaningful and even prophetic. These appointed times have instructions within them that apply in the land and with an existing temple. As we reviewed earlier, that makes many of the instructions contained in the appointed times not able to be followed in the present time. However, that will change when Yeshua returns. All is restored, and there is a functioning temple once again. Passover is really a lamb that becomes part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover is not really a day as much as it is a lamb. The Passover is slain on the 14th day of the first month of the Hebraic calendar. The Passover is eaten on the 14th day, going into the 15th day of the month. So, the 14th is the day of Passover in the sense of when the Passover lamb is slain. The 15th is also the Passover in the sense of when the Passover is eaten. Remember, a Hebraic calendar day is from evening to evening. For example, see our teaching, Evening and Morning. As the sun sets and the 15th day nears, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. This meal contains the Passover lamb, the bitter herb, and unleavened bread. So really, the Passover is slain on the 14th day of the first month and eaten on the 15th, as these two Hebraic days blend together during this event. The Passover lamb is to be sacrificed in the temple, and since there is no temple, there is no Passover lamb to eat today. 
The unleavened bread and bitter herb, for example, can be eaten. When Yeshua returns, we read that in Ezekiel 40-48 through that the new temple will allow the sacrifices to take place again. See our teaching, Animal Sacrifices in Light of Messiah. Some might immediately express concerns about this, but we must remember that the sacrifices always pointed to Yeshua, our Messiah. They do not replace Him, but point to Him. They are shadows. Even Yeshua said that He will eat of the Passover again when He comes to restore the kingdom. Luke chapter 22, verse 16. The first day and seventh day of the week of unleavened bread are rest days. Shavuot, or Pentecost, is also a rest day. The day of trumpets, or the day of shouting, or Yom Teruah, is a day of rest, and trumpets, or a loud shout, is made on that day. The day of atonement, or Yom Kippur, is a day of rest and affliction. We believe that affliction means to humble yourself, primarily through obedience. Many teach that one is to fast on that day. We agree that fasting is a form of affliction, but there is no specific commandment to fast on Yom Kippur. The bigger picture is to make sure that one is 100% focused on Yah in obedience to Him on that day. There is a reason for this understanding, and we cover this in our teaching titled, Is Yom Kippur a Day of Fasting? Lastly, there is Tabernacles, also known as Sukkot. This is an eight-day festival of eating and dwelling in tents. It is basically a camping trip full of like-minded fellowship and food. It is intended to occur in Jerusalem, inclusive of the temple where He dwells. However, Today that is not possible, as there is no temple. Thus, any observance of this time using tents is marked as a memorial, and not really obedience. Meaning this, it is not disobedience if one does not observe this aspect of Sukkot, at least until Yeshua returns. However, there are rest days that can be observed, on day 1 and day 8 of Sukkot. There are also the days of Purim and Hanukkah. These are not commandments, but traditions compatible with the Bible though some of the Jewish traditions associated with these days might want to be tested and questioned. Generally speaking, that wraps up the commandments that most of mainstream Christianity have discarded in their doctrine. It might be a lot less than you were expecting. Many seem to expect that there is many more. This might be because many of the commandments are specifically for the Levites related to the temple. We will not see those observed again until Yeshua returns and rebuilds the temple. Also, the observance will still be only by Levites, not just anyone. There are likely many questions that remain regarding the whole sacrificial system, how it applies to Yeshua, and the matter of them occurring during the 1,000-year reign. That subject, however, merits its own standalone teaching. Teaching Torah Most do not realize that we are commanded to teach the Torah to our children. Deuteronomy chapter 6 And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This is simply a Hebraic poetic way of saying that we should always be teaching our children the Torah. You might ask, how is that possible? It is possible in the same way our Messiah did it. We lead by example. Children are excellent at imitating and asking questions. The number one way to teach it is to show it by example. This is not the only way, but it should be obvious that our behavior should reflect what we read and say from the scriptures. Moving on to the next question. What commandments are often misunderstood or debated? What is tradition versus actual commandments? As you may or may not know, 
Some commandments in God's law are misunderstood or debated. We would love to say that all those in Hebrew roots all agree with each other on everything, that there is no division, no bickering, no arguing, or no silly debates. Sadly, though, humans are humans. Though Hebrew roots is closer to the truth, there are still disagreements. Sometimes people invent commandments based on loose interpretations of the scriptures. Other times, different details of commandments are debated. This is often the case when it comes to the Hebraic calendar. There are some commandments that simply seem awkward or foreign to us that it is difficult to understand them unless we see them from a Hebraic perspective. An example of this is the laws of Nidah. Laws of Nidah. Nidah means separated. This is speaking of the time in which a woman is on her menstrual cycle. Leviticus 15. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Keep in mind that being unclean is not necessarily a sin. Becoming unclean happens. But knowing when you are unclean is important, because it dictated when one is permitted to enter the temple. Since there is no physical temple today, this matter is much less of an issue as to whether or not you are unclean. However, there are direct commandments as to things that are forbidden during this time. Leviticus 18, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanliness. Uncovering her nakedness is a Hebraic way of saying intercourse. Leviticus chapter 20, if a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. Husband and wife are to remain separate from each other in this way. This is what is meant in Leviticus 15:19, in the sense of not touching your wife during her menstrual cycle. The Hebrew word for not touching can carry the meaning of literally just touching all the way to intimate relations. We can see from Leviticus 18:19 and 20:18 that the intent is surrounding intimate relations. The means to becoming unclean during this time is a matter of being exposed to blood. During a woman's cycle, especially during ancient times, a bed or chair could easily become exposed to blood given the way it was managed. And of course, intimate relations would most certainly be exposing the husband to blood. We can also see that bathing or immersing in a mikvah, that is a ritual bath, and the washing of clothes is a means to becoming clean after we become unclean in this way. Thus, it all fits and seems to make some sense. The topic is debated because some Jewish traditions go to extremes to avoid becoming ritually unclean, even a separate bed for his wife for her to sleep in during this time. Not that this is necessarily wrong, but it certainly is not necessary. It is going overboard. In addition, those who do not understand the Torah assume the traditional Jewish observance of the Torah is always as Yahweh intended, thus it can cause confusion. Moving on. Mixing threads. As we covered, we do not want to specifically mix wool and linen per Deuteronomy 22 verse 11. 
Because Leviticus 19.19 is not as specific as Deuteronomy 22.11, some have implied that not mixing other threads is not permissible. While that might be the case, we suspect that Yah was referring specifically to wool and linen as indicated in Deuteronomy 22 verse 11. For more on this, please see our teaching titled, Wool and Linen. Stoning. It is not long before one realizes that the Torah contains instructions related to capital punishment. In short, these commandments cannot be carried out because there is no biblical body established to make judgments on these matters today. In addition, we live in a land in which a non-Torah government projects authority that does not allow us to assemble a Torah-based judicial process. We strongly recommend gaining a strong grasp on this subject, as those who do not follow the Torah are often very sensitive to these commandments. They might argue that because one is following the Torah that they should be stoning everybody to be consistent in their doctrine. Well, that is not really how it works, and such misunderstandings cause a lot of confusion on this subject. All of God's commandments are good, and there is a good reason for them. For a thorough review of this subject, please see our teaching titled, Should We Stone Our Children? The Land Sabbath Every seven years we are commanded to let the land rest. Some ask whether farmers or gardeners should let their land rest every seven years. While that might be a good practice, as Yahweh must certainly have his reasons, it is not required according to the Torah. The Torah requires it once we have entered into the land that he gives us, which of course has not yet occurred. We are still scattered among the nations. Leviticus chapter 25. Yahweh spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to Yahweh. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest, or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and for the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So the Sabbath year for the land is recognized once we are in the land according to Yahweh's own words. Spiritually, the land resting in the seventh year likely stands for the 7,000th year, in which our Messiah is Lord on earth with us for 1,000 years, and we rest in the land with him. We cover that understanding in several teachings. Perhaps the most informational teaching we have on this subject is found in the two-part teaching, the fourth and seventh day, if you are interested. Another teaching is the creation prophecy, or Hebrews 4, and his rest now or later. Cheeseburgers Yes, believe it or not, in some circles, cheeseburgers are forbidden. Such understanding comes from mainstream Orthodox Judaism and misunderstanding a verse in Deuteronomy 14. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Really, the debate is not just about cheeseburgers, but any food or dish in which meat and cheese are cooked together. Jewish rabbis, including highly influential Rabbi Rashi, came to these conclusions based on the verse and the one like it in Exodus. Number one, the prohibition against cooking in a mixture of milk and meat. Number two, the prohibition against eating a cooked mixture of milk and meat. Number three, 
the prohibition against deriving any benefit from a cooked mixture of milk and meat. Most English translations translate the verse referencing a goat, whereas modern Orthodox Jewish interpretation has generalized the commandment to be inclusive of all meats. Rashi, one of the most prominent Talmudic commentators, argued that the term in question must actually have a more generalized meaning, including calves and lambs, in addition to young goats. Rashi also argued that the meaning is still narrow enough to exclude birds, all the undomesticated kosher animals, and all the non-kosher animals. The Talmudic writers had a similar analysis, but believed that since domesticated kosher animals have a similar meat to birds and to the non-domestic kosher land animals, they should prohibit these latter meats too. Creating a general prohibition against mixing milk and meat from any kosher animal, excepting fish. But here are the two problems with such interpretations. The commandment specifically mentions the milk of the mother, not just milk in general. The commandment specifically mentions goats, not other animals. Something more specific is going on here. The statistical chances of the dairy from the mother, the meat from the young of the very same mother, and then these two products making it to the same distributor, then to the same store, and then to the same customer, is nearly impossible. Despite the musings of ancient Jewish rabbis, multiple times our Creator used the Hebrew word for a young goat, and that young goat was not to be boiled in its own mother's milk. It is quite a specific commandment, and yet esteemed Jewish Talmudic commentators have chosen to broaden the commandment not only in relation to the meat, but also the source of the milk. If our Creator meant the generic form of meat, then there is a word that would have been used to refer specifically to generic meat. Meaning this, common Jewish interpretations of this commandment actually adds to the intent and purpose of the commandment, thus violating Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, by adding to the Word of God through their interpretation. Sadly, this interpretational mistake is not uncommon in the Jewish Talmud or oral law. In the first century, Yeshua referred to these oral laws as the traditions of your fathers when criticizing the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. Who would even consider boiling an animal in its own mother's milk? Some have suggested that it may have been a pagan practice related to idolatry and the worship of false gods. That is certainly possible. However, we have not found any evidence of such a pagan practice, and still, the commandment is such an interpretation that it still appears out of context and random. So, how do we better understand this commandment? The answer to the riddle of this commandment is similar to many other misunderstood commandments. The answer is in the context itself. Because of this verse, as we have already mentioned, Jewish oral law literally forbids the mixture of milk and meat, and consequently, many refuse to eat cheeseburgers. However, the physical application of this verse may actually be quite simple when examined in context. In Avigdor Bonchek's book, Studying the Torah, A Guide to In-Depth Interpretation, Bonchek explains it like this. First, let's read the scripture. Exodus 23, verse 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil or sieve a young goat in its mother's milk. And he, Avigdor Bonchek, says as follows. This injunction forbidding seething a kid in its mother's milk is the biblical basis for the laws of Kashruth, requiring the separation of meat and milk. See how the following plain sense interpretation 
based on the contiguity principle, completely divest this clause of that familiar meaning. At first glance, we have here two unrelated clauses within the same sentence. Not so, according to early commentator Joseph Beckhor Shore. He points out that the word bashael, regularly translated here as seethe or boil, really means to become ripe or mature. The phrase then means, thou shalt not allow a kid to become mature with its mother's milk. That is, you should not allow the kid to mature, rather bring it as a sacrifice in the temple. In this way, both clauses of the sentence are related. Bring your first fruits as an offering, and likewise, bring your first young animals as offerings to God. To summarize, the common Jewish oral law of this commandment fails to best apply a particular translation of the Hebrew word normally translated as boil or seethe in English. A better translation would be Exodus 23:19, you shall not mature a young goat in its mother's milk. In the preceding context of the first fruits offering, this would make so much more sense. The first part of the verse is about bringing in your first fruits of the land as an offering to Yahweh. The second part of the verse is about bringing in your first or young animals as offerings to Yahweh. Why? Because one might be tempted to only offer Yahweh the older and less preferable animals to Yahweh. Yahweh does not want us to offer our least preferable. He wants our hearts to desire to offer Him our best. And properly applying the Hebrew in context, all of verse 19 seamlessly flows together. Whereas the more common translation of Exodus 23:19, and also repeated in Exodus 34:26, use an interpretation that causes the commandment to not only really be out of place and random, but also quite absurd and awkward. Deuteronomy 14:21 also repeats the same commandment of Exodus 23:19 and Exodus 34:26. And what do we discover? It also precedes the similar context of offering your best to Yahweh and offerings to Him. So, Exodus 23.19, Exodus 34.26, and Deuteronomy 14.21 appears to have nothing to do with cooking a goat or actually any meat with the mother's milk or any milk in general. The physical application has to do with us offering a preferred young animals to Yahweh instead of trying to keep the best for ourselves. In this, we hope that this explanation offers you a more contextually and linguistically accurate physical application. The calendar. One of the most debated topics in Hebrew roots is the calendar. In an effort to seek out observance of the holidays given to us by our Creator, there are several options of calendars out there, all claiming that they are following the Torah and how to calculate the calendar correctly. Though we offer our opinion on the calendar in our teaching series, Time, Our Creator's Calendar, The Foundation, we fully admit that we are not 100% certain that we are correct. To let you know how serious of a debate and how offensive this subject is to some, there are some that make jabs at 119 Ministries daily because of our position on the matter. There are some that attempt to rally others to not support or share 119 Ministries teachings because of our position on the calendar or at least what they think our position might be, as they are not always correct. Sadly, this is a very divisive subject, and the ones that are most divisive are the ones who think they have all the answers on the subject, and unfortunately, they are many, and they all disagree with each other. We would be concerned with anyone suggesting that they have the calendar of our Creator completely figured out. That being said, give this area some study, 
perhaps consider and test our material on the subject and be leery of anyone claiming they have it all figured out. At minimum, we recommend avoiding the crowds that belittle and attack others on matters of the calendar. In the end, we see these groups doing more harm to the body than good. Such behavior and character brings no glory to our Creator. Mesuzah and Teflon A mesuzah is a small object that is traditionally hung on a doorframe, traditionally at an angle. It contains what is called the Shema, which are a few verses taken out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The tradition of the mezuzah was founded on the basis of the verse that mentions writing the commandments on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There is also the commandment to write the commandments on your hand and your forehead. Contrary to the Pharisees, the Sadducees and medieval Karaites took the commandments to be figurative. The Pharisees preferred to take the commandment literal because then it could be seen in front of men, and they liked to make them as big as possible. The Pharisees used this interpretation as another means to draw religious attention to themselves. Matthew chapter 23. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Also contrary to the Pharisees, we do not consider these literal commandments, and there are a couple reasons for this. First of all, this section of scripture called the Shema is loaded with Hebraic poetry. For instance, are we to teach our children the Torah only when we are sitting in the house, when we are walking or getting ready for bed and waking up? Of course not. But that is what the commandment literally says. What it really means is that we are to always be teaching our children the commandments of God. Can you see that? The Hebraic poetry continues, giving us a figurative instruction to make a point. The Hebraic language involves a lot of figurative language. To write something on your hands and forehead means to hear and do, which is what the word Shema means in the first place. The word Shema in Hebrew literally means to hear, but to hear it in such a way that you do it, to observe or witness something, as an example. When we write something on our forehead, it is not literal. It means that it's in our mind. That is what the forehead figuratively means. When we write something on our hand, it means we take action on it. The hand is symbolic of action. The mind, or forehead, tells the hand what to do. So to write something on our forehead and hand literally means to hear or observe, and then do it. When we write the commandments of God on our forehead, it means that we hear them and then observe them so that they are in our mind. Once they are in our mind, we write them on our hands. Again, hands are symbolic of action. We then do the commandments of God. In order to further illustrate the figurative nature of this Hebraic poetry, here are a few other examples to which Yahweh told us to write something on our forehead and hand. Exodus 13. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand Yahweh has brought you out of Egypt. And then again in verse 16, 
It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 11. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. We also see that the adversary has his own mark. The adversary has his own instructions contrary to the word of God that he wants others to hear and obey. The adversary has his own Shema. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Yeshua and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And Revelation 14, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. However, just because something has symbolic meaning, it does not mean that we should not do a commandment literally. For example, as we reviewed earlier, the wearing of tzitzis has symbolic meaning, but we apply that literally. Why? Well, for one reason, as we already mentioned, we are supposed to see the tzitzits to help us remember to keep the commandments of Yahweh. The other reason is that nothing prevents us from carrying out this commandment literally. It is easy and possible to literally obey the wearing of seat seats. As it relates to writing all the commandments on our foreheads and hands, we cannot do that literally. They would not all fit. And not only that, can you imagine writing hundreds of commandments on your forehead and hand every day? This is why Orthodox Jews simply place the Shema in a box as a summary of the commandments and then strap them to their forehead and hand. So, even they are not keeping the commandment literally, as it is not possible. Placing a few words in a box is not the same thing as all of God's commandments. In addition, strapping a box to a head or hand is not the same as writing them on a head or hand. Thus, there is no possible way to keep this commandment literally. It must be figurative, only figurative. This makes sense as we already revealed the contextual figurative and Hebraic poetic language in the sentence prior about always teaching our children the Torah, or Law of God. That leaves us with writing the commandments on the doors and gates. Again, some place the Shema in a box to represent all the commandments and then place that on a door. This is not a literal application of literally writing all the commandments on the door frame of our house or on our gates. However, it is possible to do that. But given the figurative language of the previous few verses, this is likely figurative as well, and we will demonstrate what that means. When we write the commandments on the doorframe of our house, that carries special meaning in terms of covenant theology. It basically means to remember the covenant for your household with your Creator. For more on this, we would recommend watching our teaching, The Threshold Covenant. At the gates of this city, in a Torah-based government, the elders were supposed to be at the gates, making judgments on matters of the law with the people. Thus, we want to make sure that the commandments are always remembered at the gates of the city where these judgments are to be made. We review this understanding some in our teaching titled, Should We Stone Our Children? 
All of that being said, the commandments in the Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 are likely figurative, but with a practical and literal meaning once the symbolism is understood. Despite all of this, if one wants to use a mezuzah or teflon in the way that the Orthodox Jews do, as a tradition, there is nothing wrong with this. We just need to realize that it is a tradition, not a literal observance of a commandment. Our own household has a mezuzah, but we would not consider it obedience. We simply like the tradition. Salvation Salvation has been and always will be by grace. Nothing has changed, though sometimes there is some confusion in this matter. Some of our teachings that cover this in depth are the first part of the Pauline Paradox series and the teaching called Believing. In summary, just because there are a few more commandments than we originally thought when we may have been in traditional Christianity, it changes nothing. Keeping the Sabbath does no more to earn your salvation than not committing adultery. Wearing seat seats does no more for your salvation than honoring your parents. Eating clean does no more for your salvation than not stealing from others. All commandments are a means to love God and love others. Plain and simple. Obedience is about love, not earning salvation. Once we enter the plan of salvation by means of what our Messiah did for us, what is available to us by our faith in the Word of God, we should want to do what we claim to have faith in, which is the Word of God. Thus, obedience does not cause salvation. Salvation causes obedience. 1 John chapter 2 And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. One of the most complicated subjects in all of scripture is the nature of sacrifices. What relationship do sacrifices have with our sin? What is Yeshua's relationship to sacrifices? According to Yeshua at the Last Supper, he mentions that he will eat of the Passover again when he returns. How can this be? Wasn't Yeshua the perfect sacrifice? Indeed, he was. However, sacrifices point to Yeshua, not replace him. In Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, we read prophecy about how the 1,000 year reign and how it includes a new temple with a Levitical sacrificial system. How can this be? Isn't Yeshua our high priest? Yes, but according to the author of Hebrews, that is of the heavenly order, not the earthly order. Yeshua cannot function as a high priest on earth, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 4, even though he is a heavenly priest forever. So when Yeshua rebuilds the temple on earth, it will be the Levites administrating that system. Some teachings we have on this subject is Hebrews chapter 7 and what is new about the New Covenant, covering Hebrews chapter 8. This is also complicated and we are actively studying it more ourselves. We also have a short teaching called Animal Sacrifices in Light of Messiah that reviews some of this material briefly. What is important to understand is that sacrifices before and after the cross always point to Yeshua, not replace Him. Thus, there are no contradictions. The sacrifices are a shadow of our Messiah. They have always been and always will be. The major purpose of the sacrifices is to teach us about the Messiah. Again, for more on this subject, please see our teaching, Animal Sacrifices in Light of Messiah. 
graven images. This does not come up too often, but it does occasionally. There are some that apply the commandment about graven images hyper-literally, and thus it causes contradictions in the scriptures. We have a teaching that covers this matter in detail should you wish to review and test it, titled, The Second Commandment, The Truth in Context. Halal. There is a meat that goes through a process of being blessed in the Islamic faith before it hits the meat markets. This is very similar to the situation Paul discussed about meat that was sacrificed to idols in the first century. This has caused much dissension and confusion in the body of the Messiah. If you would like to explore this further, we recommend the teaching, Meat Sacrificed to Idols. Kosher Slaughtering Jewish rabbis often refer to a particular way that clean animals must be slaughtered in order for them to be considered fit to eat according to Yahweh. Our Father simply said that we are not to consume blood. However, no matter how hard you try, all meat is going to have some blood in it. Thus, Yahweh was likely referring to making every attempt to not consume quantities of blood within reason. For example, when the pagans worshipped their false gods, they would often drink blood. This is more likely the practice that we are to refrain from. However, it does make sense to attempt to remove as much blood from the meat as realistically possible, and nearly every modern way of slaughter already does this. There are ways of slaughtering an animal to help facilitate this process, and it is also rather humane. That being said, most meat today already does involve the draining of blood, and most, if not all meat, would be considered permissible according to Leviticus 7 and 17 in this regard. Some might notice how ground beef at many meat markets today seems to be saturated in blood by noting all of the red juice. In reality, many butchers actually add red dye to water to make it look more fresh and appealing. So it is not really blood, and thus not really an issue. These are all things one can look up for themselves. Two-House Theology It is not the biggest debate or point of contention in the Hebrew Roots Movement, but it is likely in the top five. There are many flavors of this theology, much of which we would even disagree with. However, we agree to a perspective that would still be considered two-house theology. Some debate this subject with absolute passion. We present our case in this teaching titled, The Lost Sheep. But we do not invest a lot of time defending ourselves in our perspective, as we do not believe it is extremely critical. However, if you have never heard of this perspective, you may find it to be an interesting take on the gospel that you may have never heard or considered, and it may be worth your consideration. Our final recommendation on this subject is don't get caught up in the debates. They are often not productive, nor does one's position on the subject really matter in the end. Polygamy It is truly disappointing that this subject even needs to be discussed. We believe that the model placed before us is one man and one woman, and that is what our Creator called good. We believe that metaphorically, Yahweh is married to us, being one body and one bride, which is singular. Thus, following our Creator's example, again, means one bridegroom and one bride. The example of a bridegroom and multiple brides is an example not from God, but from man. 119 Ministries makes every attempt to follow the example of God not what other men have done. Thus, since it is the one man and one woman model that comes from our Creator, and it is He that we follow, this is what we believe and teach. Since the model of polygamy is clearly from man, then that is not what we believe and teach. 
as we do not believe and practice the ways and doctrines of men. It should also be noted that there is not one instance of polygamy in Scripture that led to a fruitful and blessed result. That is saying something. 119 Ministries makes every attempt to follow the patterns in Scripture that yield blessings, not undesirable outcomes. We would also argue that the Torah, in fact, prohibits the practice of polygamy. As we unpack in our teaching, does the Bible endorse polygamy? We know that this position does not speak well of the many who entertained polygamy in the Old Testament. However, they made their choices, and once they made those choices, they had to commit to the covenants that they made. In addition, in seeing how all those outcomes turned out, we see that many suffered the consequences, as well as the generations going forward. That all being said, you will not find 119 Ministries to be an advocate of polygamy, but actually quite the opposite. The name, Hashem. Welcome to perhaps the most heatedly debated topic in all of Hebrew Roots. We do find it unfortunate that LORD, in all capital letters, replaced yod heh wah commonly known as the Tetragrammaton. This is why in nearly all of our teachings, we will make a point of verbally changing LORD back to his name when reading the scriptures. Now, we do pronounce his name close to the way we believe it may have been originally pronounced. However, that is simply our opinion. We can do no better than a scholarly guess to support our conclusions. But we cannot prove it. We could be totally wrong. In fact, no one can prove it. Unless one had a method of audibly recording the name so long ago, there is no way to know for sure. And to that, all credible Hebrew linguistic scholars agree. So, though we offer our opinion on the matter, it is just that. We've stopped short of correcting anyone on the different variances of spelling and pronunciation. And we have a deep concern for anyone who is overly adamant that they have it all figured out. And we are even more concerned for the types that go on the warpath and beat down anyone who does not understand the spelling or pronunciation of the name like they do. You also find that we do not say our Messiah's name as Jesus too often. And if we do, it is only as a reference and serves as an opportunity to share his Hebrew name, Yeshua. We do this because this is how he would have normally been referred to in the first century. This is not to say that we have any problem with transliterating names. We find more meaning and value in the original Hebrew. But we stop short of saying that transliterating a name into another language is wrong. For instance, Saul transliterated his name into the Greek as Paul. A few hundred years before Messiah, a group of Jews translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Today, it is called the Septuagint, which also included transliterating all of the names. The name Yehoshua as a longer form of the name Yeshua, like Michael is the longer form of Mike, was transliterated into the Greek the same way our Messiah's name was transliterated into the Greek in the New Testament. It is not because there is a relationship to the Greek god Zeus, so some have claimed. They followed simple Hebrew-to-Greek transliterational rules. If there was really a linguistic relationship between the Greek transliteration of Yeshua and Zeus, the transliteration would have been spelled differently. Also, a straight transliteration of Yeshua to English actually would have been Joshua. But because Yeshua went from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to Old English and then finally to English, this sequence of transliterations evolved into what we hear today as Jesus. So we do not disagree with the transliterations. As we said, Paul transliterated his own name. The Septuagint transliterated every name in the Old Testament scriptures. 
and it is very possible that our Messiah may have transliterated his own name into Greek when speaking to a Greek individual, just like many transliterate their own names today when moving to another country and another language. Why? Because phonetically, a person who could only speak Greek could not usually say Yeshua, as there is not an SH sound in their standard phonics. To save others embarrassment, you would transliterate your name for them to make it easier for them, just like Paul did. In summary, there is value in the original Hebrew or Aramaic names, and basically no value in the transliterated forms, other than they are often easier for others to say, which of course is the whole point of transliteration. Some people might disagree with this. However, we teach the Torah, and the Torah does not say anywhere that transliterating a name is wrong. Thus, we cannot say it's wrong either without adding to the Word of God. So when someone uses the name Jesus, though Yeshua or Yehoshua or something similar would be more historically accurate, it is not something we can correct another person on. We can let them know that the more accurate spelling and pronunciation to the best that we are able, but we do not need to beat other people up over the matter. There is one more issue related to the name. Some believe that we are not to reveal the Tetragrammaton, yod heh wah or his name at all. And they only refer to our Creator as Hashem, which simply means the name in Hebrew. Sometimes this is due to a misunderstanding or belief that one is profaning his name by saying it. Of course, if this was true, we would not find his name in the Tanakh nearly 7,000 times. Name, or Shem, in Hebrew literally means character or authority. To profane the name of Yahweh means to banner Yahweh as your authority in your life with your mouth, but then live contrary to his instructions. In such a situation, one makes void or worthless his instructions or Torah in front of others. It makes his authority out to be worthless in front of others. It has nothing to do with how often or in what way we say or write out his name in terms of actual spelling or pronunciation. Due to time constraints, we were forced to be very brief on this subject. This subject actually deserves a standalone teaching on the matter. For more on this subject, please see our teaching series titled Hashem. There's one takeaway that we can encourage you to consider on this topic is this. Please be kind considerate, and understanding with others on this topic. This topic often does more harm than good in the body, and frankly, it simply is not necessary. Summary on Debates and Points of Contention Hopefully, this did not scare you away. This was the good, bad, and ugly about what is commonly called the Hebrew Roots Movement. You will be learning a lot, and with much excitement and passion. The Word of God will be a million times more alive. The Bible discussions will be fascinating and very meaningful. Your life will be much more blessed in deep fellowship and other things that really matter. These are all great things. However, there is also a lot of maturity and growing up that the Hebrew Roots Movement needs to do as well. And there's a lot of opportunities for improvement as it relates to teaching and correcting in patience, kindness, and self-control. That being said, be part of the solution to that problem by not contributing to it. Encourage others with a smile and love. Be patient with one another and be kind to one another. It is not helpful for people to become Torah terrorists or pagan police. We need people with the right attitude coupled with the wholeness of all of His truth. When we become united in truth in that spirit and mentality, when we really live the love that the Torah stands for, that will be the true example that the nations need to see to come to the truth. What do I do about fellowship? 
Many who begin following Torah are currently already attending services and fellowship at a Sunday church. So the question becomes, what do I do? The benefit to maintaining connections and attending Sunday fellowship is that you continue to have the opportunity to share the truth of the Torah and be a light to them. However, don't be surprised if many are not as excited about the whole word being true as you might be, and you might even be asked to leave. Regardless of how it goes, simply remember, sharing the truth in love, patience, and kindness always trumps displaying arrogance, pride, impatience, or frustration. So we encourage you to keep that in mind because it can be a challenge, and it is easy for the flesh to get the best of us. All of that being said, one may choose to quietly or politely step away from Sunday fellowship, and there might be good reasons for this. For one, the Sabbath is the day before, and you may have already found alternative, meaningful fellowship already. Or another reason may be that you have a difficult time relating to those who do not want to see the truth of the Torah, and the persecution or interaction with those is simply too much, and there might be other reasons as well. The fact of the matter is this. There is no perfect answer. Talk to the Father and see what He may have you do. See what doors open. See what opportunities to share the truth might exist. See who has ears to hear and who does not. But here is what not to do. We do not want to go on a crusade attacking those who reject the Torah. We have seen it take a year or years of patient and kind sharing before someone finally gets it. However, we also have seen relationships go far south because of poor interaction. If the presentation is poor and done with the wrong motive, the one rejecting Torah will never be open to considering the truth of the whole word again. So it comes down to this. If we cannot share the truth in a nice way, it is better not to share it at all and simply walk it out as an example. If they are interested, they will come to you with heartfelt, truth-seeking questions. It is rare that we have seen someone who comes to understand the Torah continue to attend Sunday church long-term. Short-term is common as a means to share the truth, but one of two things happens eventually. The church asks you to leave because you are a threat to their doctrine, or the one who pursues Torah realizes they have exhausted all means of sharing the truth and it is time to move on, because all those who are willing to hear have heard, and those who are not willing to hear still won't. Ideally, getting plugged into a local Torah fellowship should be sought. 119 Ministries offers a map of those who have offered their contact information, seeking fellowship in their area. That might be a good place to start. You may want to place your email address on that map as well, or better yet, invent a new email address just for this purpose, as this is public information. However, be sure to test the doctrine and faith of the fellowship you interact with. We do not test everyone on the map for you. Be safe and search things out. There are strange beliefs out there, so tread carefully and also remember that you might be new to the Torah and impressionable. Take things slow, test everything, quick to pause and test, and slow to adopt until confirmed in the Word. Most of the time, getting plugged into Sabbath fellowship yields a thousand times more blessings than anything experienced in traditional Sunday venues. So, we pray that such blessings are right around the corner for you. If you are not able to find anyone locally immediately, keep in mind that nationally, people meet on the feast days in various areas. Also. Online, there is a lot of virtual fellowship that happens with message boards, chat rooms, online teachings, and interaction. So no matter what, you're not on your own, but plugged into the body of the Messiah in some way. How should I expect this to affect friends and family? How should I best proceed? 
This is a difficult question. All relationships are different. However, one thing is certain. Eventually, your friends and family deserve to know where the direction of your faith has headed and why. This might be done in person, in a letter, over the phone, etc. Everyone knows the appropriate means to do this depending on the closeness of the relationship in question. Keep in mind, the truth often offends, but that does not mean that we should try to offend. We should do everything to present everything in love and kindness. Ask them to consider testing these things, but do not be oppressive about it and beat them over their heads. This will be very sensitive, and despite how perfect your presentation might be, relationships might still be very damaged, and it may take months or years before things seem right again. Through all of this, walk the light before them. Show them the grace and truth of the Messiah. Give them every reason to see your fruit and want to eat of it, so that that seed may grow in them as well. It is very easy to mess this up, and even if you do this perfectly, it may not feel like it. So, give it much thought and prayer. Ask yourself what your motives are with every word that you say and every step that you take. Make sure those motives are compatible with the character of the Word of God that we claim to follow and believe in. What teachers are recommended by 119 Ministries? We are often asked what teachers 119 Ministries might recommend. To be honest, our list is quite small. Not because we necessarily disagree with that many teachers out there, but a few have been around long enough for us to have studied their character and doctrine in depth. We rarely have time to watch teachings from other ministries. There are also ministries that we do have much concern for and we would not recommend because of the fruit that we have witnessed. What we can say is at the time of this teaching, we would recommend Rico Cortez, Bill Cloud, and Brad Scott. Even these ministries, who we have long respected, may teach things differently than 119 Ministries on some topics topics we would consider more or less inconsequential. They may even voice disagreement on how 119 Ministries interprets a few things, and that is okay. More than likely, if you find that you agree with any given ministry 100%, you may have been attracted to a cult-like personality of that ministry and it has affected your doctrinal understanding. No ministry understands or teaches the Word of God perfectly, though we should all strive toward that goal. You will disagree with 119 on certain things if you watch our teachings long enough. That will happen, and that is okay. You will even find that we disagree with ourselves after some time, and a remastered teaching will reflect that change. Again, this is not to say that there are not other ministries out there that are worthy of examining and testing. We simply are offering three ministries that we can recommend with high confidence. This is also not to say that we might agree with those ministries 100% but we do agree with them on everything that really matters. Sadly enough, there are other ministries we would not recommend. Some would be considered anti-missionaries that attempt to discredit the New Testament and our Messiah. We would recommend the Brit Hadashah series should you encounter any of those. Any ministry that denies Yeshua as our Messiah is a ministry that does not pass the test. We suspect that the teachers we recommended might offer a good start. Please do not interpret that to mean that one should not consider other ministries. We are simply sharing three ministries that have proven over and over that we can confidently share them to others. In conclusion, we hope that this teaching was of some value. We fully realize that this was not a one-stop introduction. There is simply too much to review and too little time for one teaching. But we pray that it has helped some and that it has set you on a path of blessings at your next level of intimate relationship with your Creator. 
bringing more glory to Him as we all continue to learn and apply His awesome ways. We hope that this teaching has blessed you. And remember, continue to test everything. Shalom. It is because of you, our generous supporters, who make it possible to offer these high-quality teachings completely free of charge. If you feel led to support 119 Ministries so that we can continue this effort, please visit testeverything.net and click on the Support 119 tab. Learn how you can partner with us to take the whole Word of God to the nations.